This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. So now we have warring parties in Yemen. They have a signal to continue the, the war because there are still countries that support them with weapons. There are countries that support them with uh, military technical support. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to season two of the Civilian Protection Podcast. I'm Annie Scheel, Senior Advisor for the United States at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. And I'm Mark Arlosco, Military Advisor from PAX. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. Our first season of the Civilian Protection Podcast explored the journey of civilians seeking acknowledgement and compensation for harm, the long-term effects of a single bombing on civilian communities, the legacies of the war in Afghanistan, and more. And this season, we'll continue to center the experiences of civilians as we explore topics from arms sales, to climate change and environmental degradation, to community-led protection initiatives. Today's episode starts in some ways on April 22nd, 2018, when planes belonging to the Saudi and UAE-led coalition dropped a bomb on a wedding celebration in Al-Raqqa village in Yemen. The attack killed 21 civilians, including 11 children, and injured 97 people. The bomb was a GBU-12 Paveway 2, made and sold in the United States. Today, we explore the system that made this and so many incidents like it possible, that saw a bomb made in the USA destroy the lives of dozens of people celebrating a wedding in Yemen. I started by speaking with Ali Jamil, Director of Accountability and Redress at Muatana for Human Rights, a Yemeni organization that has done critical work advocating for human rights, documenting civilian harm, and supporting victims of the war in Yemen. And listeners might remember that we spoke to Ali's colleague, Bonyan, about civilian casualty investigations in season one. Muatana has been documenting civilian harm in the war in Yemen since the Saudi-led coalition intervention in Yemen began back in 2015. Your organization has often described the war in Yemen as the forgotten war or an ignored war. Can you start by explaining what the war has looked like for civilians in the last few years and what the role of the United States has been? Uh, yes, uh, so it's we usually say that the, the war in Yemen is forgotten war because um, we think that the war in Yemen should have stopped long time ago. Um, for for people who are working on Yemen and in Yemen on human rights, it's really really frustrating uh, because all of this that is happening, it could have stopped one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, or maybe five years ago, if uh, countries uh, stopped fueling. Uh, warring parties in Yemen with arms and uh, may use the, their pressure on warring parties to stop this war. Uh, we believe that um, there is there is no uh, there is no potential on, on military uh, operations in Yemen, and it seems that it's almost blocked to be solved through military operations. But there is an international interest in, in the war in Yemen. And uh, this this interest is uh, like civilians are paying uh, the, the 
uh, the price of this interest. Ali, do you recall a specific civilian harm incident that was caused using U.S. weapons? Uh, yes. Uh, there are uh, several incidents, but uh, I would like to speak about an incident that happened in April 2018, uh, in which an um, airstrike happened on a wedding party. The wedding hall, which was to have been the scene of joyous celebration, was turned into a death trap. Local officials said the first missile detonated in the men's section of the wedding party. Moments later, a second one hit the side on which the females were gathered. A young boy screaming and crying next to what appears to be the lifeless body of his father. Dozens of people were treated in the nearby hospital. The wedding party was in a village in Hajja to the northwest of Yemen. Um, normal civilian people uh, in a poor uh, rural area uh, were, were having um, a wedding party. And uh, right in, in, in the middle of the party, the, 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 the airstrikes happened. Uh, it was really... Um, a very bloody airstrikes in which 21 uh, civilians were killed, including 11 children and 97 injured, including 48 children and two women. Ali and his team went to the site to investigate the airstrike and found that the strike had been carried out using U.S. weapons. Uh, we heard about this, uh, this incident um, in the night of, 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 of the incident because the incident happened at 10 p.m., um, next day in the morning, three of uh, the team in Muatana uh, traveled from Sana'a to the, the area of the strike to join the field researcher in documentation of this incident. So uh, we met with, with um, victims, survivors, family members, and uh, we looked into the aftermath of, of the airstrikes. We were able to, to find pieces of the remnants of the weapon uh, used for this um, airstrikes, and we were able to uh, to, uh, to share these, uh, to take pictures of these uh, weapon remnants, and then um, contracted the weapon expert to do analysis of the weapon used. Um, the the result of analysis uh, that. The expert made says that this weapon is US-made. It's GPU-12 Baveway 2, laser-guided bomb with MK-82 warhead. Um, it should be a precise bomb. And um, like the, the targeting this wedding with such bomb, um, it should be intentional because it's, it's, it's not a bomb that, that can be... Uh, some sort of indiscriminate attack. Because the bomb is laser-guided, it should be very precise. And, you know, you talked about speaking with victims and survivors and documenting the aftermath. Can you talk a little bit more about what that aftermath has looked like for those families impacted? It's, um, like, the wedding was, was in almost, uh, like, something like a tent next to a house. Uh, the area was poor area, people didn't have uh, public services, um, like all they have are their small houses, and this uh, airstrike just ruined the house, uh, killed too many people, um, 
like when you meet with 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 people and, and after and after the strikes you see how different people have different sufferings like we met with with the mother of the groom and um, she was really really sad about what happened to to uh, to the wedding we also met another woman uh, who lost um, her tool that she she used to to put the cow milk inside and she was really really uh, feeling sad about her tool because it's almost part of her um, food security and it's not easy for her to get another uh, another tool maybe to other people uh, this type of of suffering to saudis or to to americans is nothing but to, to this woman it was really really a sad moment and based on what we know about u.s support during the war i imagine that this story is sadly not very unique is this something that Watana has documented frequently you know U.S. or, or weapons from other um, exporters being used in this kind of harm? Yes, this this uh, this incident is part of uh, a report that we, uh, we we published with support of uh, Pax for Peace. Uh, the report highlights 27 incidents in which Muapana were able to find remnants of the weapon used. Uh, speaking of uh, finding the remnants, it's, it's really not an easy thing to find the remnants of the weapon used. And we always say that what we have documented is not everything. Within our capacities, we can't document everything. We're just locally many NGO. We, we can't document everything. But uh, what we have found until now, evidence for is the US, the UK, Italy. We've been talking now, of course, about you know, the use of U.S. weapons or, or weapons from other countries being used directly in a strike. Um, but of course, U.S. support for warring parties has been broader than that. Can you talk a little bit about what that other support has looked like and how Mwatana has approached that? Uh, supporting that uh, countries involved in Yemen uh, is really critical in keeping the war moving forward or stopping the war. Uh, I have been uh, in a panel last year uh, with a researcher from Spain who who was speaking about uh, how important is the the technical support for for the coalition uh, to continue their airstrikes. And uh, he stated that all the new high-technology fighter jets cannot operate for more than five days without technical support. So uh, there are many countries in the world can stop the war in Yemen uh, just by stopping this technical support, stopping uh, the, the transfers of weapons to Yemen. And that's obviously a very real practical impact in allowing the war to continue. What do you see as the political signal that that support also sends. It's a very clear signal that, uh, despite what you have done in Yemen, uh, you still can do farther. Uh, there is other signals that that happens. Uh, so now we have like warring parties in Yemen. They have a signal to continue the the war because there are still countries that support them with weapons. There are countries that support them with uh, military technical support. Uh, and also, um, 
last year we lost the, the only independent UN mechanism uh, investigating on uh, human rights violations in Yemen, the GEE. Ali is referring to the UN Group of Eminent Experts on Yemen, an international mechanism mandated to investigate violations and abuses committed by all parties to the Yemen conflict, which ended last year after political pressure from Saudi Arabia and other coalition members. This also is another signal for warring parties uh, to continue. And uh, it was really clear that after uh, the termination of, of the mandate, which happened in October 2021, there was a very high escalation in the number of airstrikes starting in November 2021. Uh, that led to, to many uh, bloody airstrikes from November until the beginning of uh, 2022. And why do you think that the this kind of support, you know, from the U.S., for example, why do you think the support has continued despite clear evidence of harm, like so much of what's found in your reporting? I think because there are uh, there are governments that have chosen economical uh, interest over human rights. Uh, there are countries that that thinks of more. Uh, national income than thinking of human rights and the lives of others um, somewhere else in the world. I'm also curious about your asks, especially for the U.S. government and other governments that are providing this kind of support to the warring uh, parties. Uh, For U.S. governments and other governments as well, our ask is to stop uh, military support uh, weapon transfers to warring parties in Yemen, to all warring parties in Yemen. And uh, our asks even goes beyond that. We're expecting from them to to, to be um, more uh, active on uh, establishing a mechanism, criminally focused mechanism to investigate on uh, war crimes in Yemen, and also to push for peace in Yemen. Uh, countries like uh, U.S., U.K., France, uh, they have very strong relationships with, with countries that are involved in the war in Yemen and they, they, they can have uh, leverage to push for, for peace in Yemen. And I don't think this is something uh, impossible for them. I think it's, it's something very easy to reach. The question we asked at the top of the episode was, how does this happen? Not just in Yemen, but in so many places around the world. What is the process by which so many U.S. weapons end up being used in civilian harm and human rights violations around the world? I know Civic has done a lot of work on this. How do we start to understand this issue, Annie? Well, I think you have to start by understanding the role the U.S. plays in the global arms trade. The U.S. is by far the top exporter of weapons worldwide, totaling approximately $161 billion in arms exports last year. That's over one-third of the global market and more than the next three countries, Russia, China, and France, combined. It's enormous. And the U.S. has really treated these arms transfers both as an economic export in many cases, but also as a tool of foreign policy, as security assistance to security partners, which includes not just weapons, but also other equipment, maintenance contracts for that equipment, like the refueling and repairs for Saudi aircrafts that Ali mentioned, and training and advising. 
And through this approach, U.S. assistance has repeatedly gone to countries committing human rights violations and civilian harm, including war crimes, and has helped to fuel conflict and violence. And even when a U.S. weapon isn't used directly in an airstrike, as in the case that Ali described, U.S. weapons transfers and other assistance to governments committing harm also sends a really clear political signal that the U.S. is okay with what those countries are doing. So this is a known issue, Annie. What are U.S. policymakers doing about it? Civic and other organizations have long advocated for better policies around both how the U.S. decides to move forward or not move forward with a sale or transfer, as well as how they monitor how those U.S. origin items are being used after a weapon is transferred. So when the U.S. is considering a sale, for example, human rights and civilian protection concerns are rarely prioritized, especially compared to industry and economic incentives and other foreign policy concerns like garnering goodwill with what the U.S. sees as an important security partner. For example, under the Trump administration, the conventional arms transfer policy, referred to as the CAT policy, really elevated the importance of supporting the U.S. industrial base in arms transfers and de-emphasized the importance of human rights. And we're still waiting for the Biden administration's replacement policy. The State Department also doesn't apply Leahy vetting, which is legally required human rights vetting for recipients of U.S. security assistance to most arms transfers, which is another really big gap. But what about after the sale? What about things like end-use monitoring? So end-use monitoring is this term that is meant to refer to how the U.S. tracks the way that its weapons are used after they're transferred to make sure they're used in accordance with their purpose. But it's actually really terribly named because current end-use monitoring programs don't actually track use. They are designed to make sure that U.S. origin items aren't diverted to third parties and to keep U.S. proprietary technology safe. But they don't currently monitor use in human rights violations or in the conduct of conflict, including civilian harm, which is another big gap. So in light of all those challenges, what tools do we have to understand this system and stop these problematic sales? Is, is there any oversight? Like, what about Congress and the public? So the system of congressional oversight over U.S. arms transfers is pretty broken. Right now, in order to successfully oppose an arms sale Congress disagrees with, they essentially need a two-thirds supermajority in both chambers in order to overcome a likely presidential veto. For example, in 2019, Congress voted overwhelmingly across party lines to stop U.S. arms transfers to Saudi Arabia in response to the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, as well as the kinds of Saudi actions in the Yemen conflict that Ali talked about. Trump vetoed that resolution, and the sale went forward. So many organizations, civic included, have pressed for a change to congressional procedures to what we call flip the script, so to speak, meaning that for some of the riskiest sales, Congress would actually have to affirmatively vote to approve those sales. And then the last hurdle I'll mention, you know, since you asked about the public, is transparency. There are a lot of sales, especially commercial sales, which are those that are sold from private U.S. companies to purchasers around the world, that are not reported publicly and are very, very hard to track. That makes it really hard for researchers, for members of the public, and even for Congress to understand the scope of U.S. arms transfers around the world and to influence those decisions for the better. But it's not impossible. Which brings me to our last two guests, who really set out to do what U.S. policymakers somehow seemed to be failing to do in Yemen understand the recipients and impact of U.S. assistance to the Saudi and UAE-led coalition. 
Hi, um, my name is Joyce Sohyun Lee. I work for the Visual Forensics team at the Washington Post, and our team really focuses on visually driven investigations. And I'm Tony Wilson. I'm the founder and director of the Security Force Monitor, which is a project of the Human Rights Institute at Columbia Law School. Um, and our project, the Security Force Monitor, focuses on using publicly available information to understand the structure the commanders uh, and the operations of police and military forces around the world um, with the goal of having that information be useful to journalists, human rights researchers, and others concerned with the conduct of these forces. Before we dive into your research, I want to start by putting this research in context. Can you describe what the war has looked like in the last few years, what we know about civilian harm trends in Yemen, and what the U.S. role has been? So um, just as a way of background, um, on March 26, 2015, a coalition of nine countries led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates um, launched an airstrike campaign and later a ground uh, invasion campaign in Yemen um, with the goal of defeating the armed group Ansar Allah, also called the Houthis, which at the time controlled northern Yemen and had um, proceeded into the south um, and had seized control of southern Yemen as well. Um, since the beginning, I mean, since day one, uh, human rights groups have been raising concern about the conduct of coalition operations, in particular the airstrike campaign. Um, actually, the, the first recorded uh, airstrike um, that human rights groups raised concerns about was on day one, was on March 26, 2015. Um, and that continued going forward as um, human rights groups recorded strikes on other things that they classified as civilian objects, be it residential homes, factories that produce uh, beverages like milk and, and other things, um, funeral halls, um, schools, and, and other um, things that, according to the groups, as they documented them, should not have been struck by the coalition, that they were not military targets um, or not appropriate targets to be struck by the coalition. At the same time, these countries are huge recipients of U.S. security assistance from training sales of weapons, planes, and other equipment. Um, and that trend continued through the war as well. The only thing I would add is that the conflict has led to one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Mm. Hundreds of thousands of people have died from fighting or indirect consequences like hunger. And conservative estimates put that, you know, civilian deaths from the air campaign alone is somewhere around 9,000. And again, I would emphasize that that is a conservative estimate. Um, so the toll of this Saudi-led um, coalition intervention in Yemen and the civil war has just been devastating. And what made you undertake this particular investigation? You know, how did you start? What did the research look like? Really, the research started from where we were able to support human rights groups like Mawatana and others who are doing really critical on-the-ground investigations of the airstrikes and their consequences. Um, obviously, we're not going to be able to do on-the-ground research. Um, I mean, there's so many constraints for groups even based in the country and, and, and threats and, and other things that they have to overcome. Um, but what quickly became clear as a question that we could really tackle was this 
uncertainty around what the coalition was. And so what we did is we started with what the coalition said about itself. And, and when the war started on March 26, 2015, there was a lot of announcements about you know, this country sent this. Bahrain sent F-16s. Saudi sent F-15s. Other countries sent other types of planes. And that gave us a hook of where to start the research. So what we did is um, I went and documented, okay, what are all the air forces of these countries, the entire air force? What are all the units? What do they fly? Um, and then from there, to take those first kind of glimpses into the air campaign to say, like, okay, well, if this source is saying Bahrain sent S-16s, if I know everything about the Air Force from public sources, what units fly S-16s? And conversely, what units don't fly S-16s? Which units, you know, we don't have any evidence of them serving in Yemen. We kind of went down the line country by country. Um, and the key there for air forces is this term that I'll use again and again and again is squadrons, which are the main fighting unit of an air force um, that's from eight to 24 planes. It's kind of a range, um, but they generally have one role or a main role. Um, and so having all of that information together allowed us to understand, okay, not only these are the squadrons that we should be concerned about, but these are the squadrons we should be concerned about, not only for their planes, but because they can conduct airstrikes. The research was really aided by a researcher at Malatana, um, who I worked with extensively over the course of uh, more than a year, training them in security force monitors methodology, but then um, really relying on them to dig through Arabic language sources um, to find material related to um, this question about the coalition. Um, and that was really instrumental to the success of this project and the ultimate kind of outcomes. From there, it was a question of, okay, we, we have a good sense of the Air Forces and, and what units could have served. Um, we know more about them. How do we track U.S. security assistance to these forces? Um, and the good news is the U.S. is comparatively fairly transparent. It makes a lot of announcements of things. And what Tony's referring to here are announcements of government-to-government -government sales that meet a certain dollar threshold and therefore have to be notified to Congress. This unfortunately doesn't include commercial sales, for example. The bad news is, to understand it, you've got to go through every daily announcement of the DOD's website, read through it, say, okay, what, what are they selling today? What's been approved? Could this go to one of the countries we're concerned about? If it does, could it go to one of the units we're concerned about? Um, and so <laughs> that's what we did is just dug through all of those reports. And finally, the last thing we, we looked at was what are the allegations actually been made against the coalition, against the air campaign? And so reading through the various human rights reports to pull together a list of over 300 airstrikes that they had raised concerns about that they had alleged either were potential violations, were violations of international humanitarian law, or potentially were war crimes. And this is so interesting because, you know, the Pentagon has often said that it's difficult to pinpoint which units in foreign militaries are actually receiving U.S. equipment because U.S. equipment, you know, can be moved around. But what you're saying is that the research that both of you have done has found that the specific squadrons receiving U.S. support is actually completely knowable information um, and with open source information, no less. That's exactly right. 
that even with all of the concerns being raised and all the potentials for all these airstrikes, at the end of the day, we found if you only know the types of planes that countries sent, that's 39 squadrons that could have done the airstrikes in Yemen. That's it. Um, and from there, we were able to find publicly available information to confirm 19 of those squadrons did serve in Yemen. Um, and it's ultimately very, very knowable. And I actually want to ask you a little bit more about that. You know, how did your findings line up with what we know about civilian casualties in Yemen, including possible war crimes? In other words, did you find that U.S. support was linked to airstrikes that may have been war crimes? Yeah, so no, we weren't able to, so being able to link so a specific squadron to an airstrike, um, you know, is not something that we were able to do ultimately. And it's not for a lack of trying. Um, I think that there's, you know, as we discussed before, usually when an airstrike occurs, even when the coalition sets that they're going to investigate one of their own airstrikes, they'll still say this was carried out by the coalition without any kind of specifics about the squadron that was involved. And, you know, I think that we found that detail to be exceedingly difficult to know. But what we do know is that the Saudi-led coalition maintains a master database of each airstrike. And they also, in that database, detail the squadron and the type of munition that was used. And we also know, according to U.S. officials, um, that both American and British personnel were, that were stationed in Riyadh at the coalition headquarters had access to this database at some point during the war. Meaning that you know, Tony and I might not know, but in theory, you know, American and British officials should have known or at one point knew, like at, at a certain point, which squadron carried out which airstrike um, and potentially um, might have known which squadron carried out um, airstrikes that violated or appeared to violate um, the rules of war. So what I'm hearing from you is that your research wasn't able to make that exact connection because of the information available, but, and I was struck by actually a, a quote from Tony in, in your piece, that, you know, there's virtually, based on what you found, virtually no way uh, for the U.S. or other countries to support these squadrons without supporting squadrons that may be linked to war crimes and other uh, violations. That's correct. That's correct. There's really no way to be supporting these squadrons and not run that risk of supporting a squadron that's potentially committed a war crime. Overwhelmingly, um, so much of the coalition, they're flying American equipment and using American weaponry. Um, and it's its really, um, I think it's worth sort of keeping that in mind that, you know, at the end of the day, we've gotten really into the specifics, but the top line is that like the majority of these squadrons couldn't fly or even exist without American fighter jets and planes and American personnel on the ground helping these planes get off the ground. And, you know, given that reality, the U.S. has faced quite a bit of pressure around its role in civilian harm in Yemen. What do we know about how the U.S. government has addressed these concerns over the last few years or tried to? Yeah, that's a... You know, that's a great question. Um, so we know from, and, and Tony nodded to this as well, that 
pretty much from day one, there were significant concerns about whether coalition airstrikes may have violated the rules of law. And we know that, you know, there are these internal State Department discussions around as well um, because of documents of emails that were released as part of a Freedom of Information Act request by Reuters. Um, and you know, the United States sort of did a, took a couple of steps to mitigate these uh, civilian harm risks. Um, the first is that you know, they sent advisors to the coalition headquarters um, to advise on civilian harm reduction tactics. Um, additionally, for the Saudi Air Force, um, they provided civilian casualty, law of armed conflict, and human rights trainings um, as, par as part of like their, their foreign military sales package to the Saudi Air Force. And in 2019, um, the U.S. also adopted a policy that required that precision-guided missiles have to be sold with appropriate targeting infrastructure. Um, and I think, you know, one concern that, you know, really piqued um, our interest in, in the topic is concerns about whether any U.S. officials um, might be sort of vulnerable to charges of aiding and abetting war crimes under international law. Um, I am not a liar, um, but having spoken with a couple of really, um, of, you know, a few um, brilliant um, lawyers um, for the story, um, you know, we learned that war crimes and aiding and abetting have different standards in different courts, including domestic ones. Um, but one standard that we came to again and again is that individuals or state um, might be found guilty of aiding and abetting if they continue to provide assistance to a problematic actor with knowledge that their support would contribute to future crimes and despite assurances. Um, and, you know, that is sort of important to keep in mind. Um, and moreover, um, the GAO... That's the Government Accountability Office, which investigates how the federal government spends taxpayer dollars. ...publicly released a report in June that, you know, that basically found that the DOD and state had not properly investigated which U.S. support contributed to civilian harm, um, despite reports of extensive civilian harm in Yemen. Um, and I'll just add um, from the contracting side, even while these concerns were being raised, over that seven-year period, every U.S. administration approved contracts that probably benefited airstrike squadrons serving in Yemen. Um, Obama and Trump and Biden administrations all approved contracts that went to the various coalition countries and to and and had planes, equipment, or weapons that would go to that we only have sources that could have benefited um, airstrike squadrons. So then in 2021, uh, the Biden administration announced that it would end U.S. support for what they deemed offensive operations carried out by the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. Um, and I'm curious if, you know, in terms of your research, did you find that that distinction held? Was there assistance continuing to support these squadrons? Right. So I think the distinction that they're making is on offensive weapons. So let's say the bomb that you would actually use to carry out the airstrike, which they haven't sold, um, as at least as far as the contracts that we looked at. However, the issue is Sure, you're not selling the bomb that's being put on the plane, but if you're still selling the plane or servicing the plane or putting new equipment into the plane that's then carrying out these strikes, um, that's not a very good distinction, and that's not really 
that much of a limitation, it seems like. Um, you're still running the risk of supporting a plane, supporting a squadron that is potentially linked to an airstrike that is a potential war crime. And I would just add that you know, the State Department hasn't provided really clear or, well, you know, a clear definition of what they mean by offensive versus defensive. And so, you know, when President Biden took office and pretty much immediately after announced the end of offensive support um, and paused sales to Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis pending review, um, despite this pause, the maintenance contracts that Tony just alluded to weren't impacted. Those were still ongoing um, and, you know, were helping keep these um, Air Force squadrons, you know, ready to fly. And the other side of this is that the U.S. still has, the U.S. has moved forward um, under the Biden administration with um, arms sales to the Saudis and the Emiratis, um, what they call defensive weapons um, to the Saudis. They've sold, um, you know, they, the State Department has approved a sale of hundreds of millions of air-to-air -air missiles to the Saudi Arabia. And then for the UAE, um, you know, a tens of million dollar sale um, to booster the country's missile defense system. So all this to say, the support continues, um, whether it's defensive or offensive. You know, it is a blurry line, and that was something that we sort of ran up against as we tried to ask the State Department is, you know, what is offensive? What is defensive? what falls under which? And, you know, that's been a really difficult question, I think, to answer. And why do you think, you know, in light of these really well-documented civilian harm and human rights risks, why do you think so much of this support that you investigated continued? And, and some of it, as you just mentioned, has continued. So we, we came across two, um, I guess, two points to that. The first is Leahy vetting, um, which the Leahy law... Um, is about the statute that essentially says, you know, the United States cannot provide security assistance to units of foreign militaries that are implicated in um, a gross violation of human rights. Um, but under the current interpretation, um, that the Leahy law vetting only kicks in when that security assistance is paid for by the United States. And so countries like the Saudis and the Emiratis that pay for their own assistance are not subject to Leahy vetting. Um, and then the other factor that we learned about is just that there is the sheer volume of contracts um, overwhelms human rights concerns in the vetting process. And I'm sure, Annie, you're well aware of this. Um, but, you know, one, you know, we were sent, the House Democrats wrote a letter to a subcommittee um, back in April. And just to quote them, they said that, staffing constraints that meant that over the course of the, of the year, the State Department was expected to complete an analysis on the human rights risks associated with a weapons export license every five minutes, which is an impossible task, really. Um, but it really brings to mind that it's not just, you know, the, the sales that we hear about for military sales that are over a certain threshold. There's also direct commercial sales and this whole other universe of sales that you know, the public doesn't really have any insight to and that the sheer volume of contracts is really much larger um, than, you know, we know and that we were able to review for this project, not because we didn't want to, but because that information isn't public. And I want to close by asking you, you know, I'm curious about what was most surprising to you in doing this investigation and also 
you know, what are your biggest kind of takeaways or what do you see as the biggest implications um, moving forward? I think the, you know, the, the biggest challenge for us, um, unsurprisingly, is that this is such a complicated universe to learn about, complicated laws, um, just a myriad of government agencies um, and um, uh, offices within the Department of State um, and the Defense Department um, and the DOD. Um, and, you know, just, you know, a number of, I, I guess, um, perhaps, I don't want to say barriers, but challenges towards transparency and accountability. And that feels, you know, concerning given just the amount of money that's involved in this, the number of countries that the U.S. is selling and supporting. Um, and, you know, it, it raised important questions for us about how we can have accountability and transparency into a really lucrative, um, I guess, industry that does have very real impact abroad and, on, and especially in Yemen. The biggest surprise, well, there's actually a couple. I would say from, from my side, um, one of the more depressing things actually was it took us a while to pull together all of the sources. That That's not depressing. It just took the time. But um, what was quite depressing was once we got them all together and understood what they were telling us and, and you know, all of that, by late 2015, you could have mapped out the coalition from open sources. You know, If that was literally the only things you had, you could have done it. You could have understood. Um, and so that... That means the U.S. government could have understood who was serving in the coalition and what the concerns were. Simply, if they, you know, and they, they did have access to the same sources we were looking at, um, with obviously vastly more resources. Um, I think the the second thing, thinking of you know civilian protection concerns and, and the questions that this raises you know, for U.S. policy is. Um, Again, we only looked at contracts for that seven-year period, but um, those contracts are still going. The the last, the latest ones through like 2029. So you know these questions are for this administration, but future administrations. And you know finally, the the, the implications for any one sale can really reverberate through time. So the planes that we're raising concerns about that are attacking Yemen um, or that may be potentially involved in war crimes. These were sold by the George H.W. Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the W. Bush administration. Um, and so when these sales happen, you know, what are the implications of it five years down the line, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, 20 years down the line? Like that's the real concern is once they're sold, they're sold. Once they're sold, they're sold. Exactly. Sending weapons around the world, often with U.S. tax dollars in this case, comes with extraordinary risks, not least to civilians who too often find themselves on the receiving end of these weapons, as so much of Ali's and Watsana's research in Yemen has documented. And as Tony and Joyce's work really highlights, it's a really complex and opaque issue to untangle. I mean, if this universe is difficult for researchers and journalists and advocates to understand, you know, people who are dedicated to understanding this issue, it's going to be really hard for other members of the public to understand. What can people do? I think exactly for the reasons you just pointed out, 
Members of Congress don't often hear from their constituents about arms sales and the concerns that people have with how weapons made in the USA are being used around the world. And it's worth recognizing that there are factories building these weapons all over the U.S., in congressional districts all over the U.S., and that the arms industry gets a lot of power from lobbying specific members in those districts and states and through campaign contributions. So for listeners in the United States, I'd start by making sure that elected officials and candidates know that this is an issue people care about and push for legislation that adds more human rights and civilian protection requirements to arms transfer rules and improves transparency and congressional oversight. So today we focused on the U.S., but of course at PAX, we've seen this as an issue with other countries that export weapons, including many European countries. We've been pushing governments to make sure their arms exports comply with international norms that are enshrined in the Arms Trade Treaty. So listeners around the world can press their representatives and governments to join and abide by this treaty. And you can also find more resources in the written notes under this episode, wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode. Next up on the Civilian Protection Podcast, we'll explore conflict and the environment looking at how the fighting in Ukraine is directly and indirectly harming the natural environment and why this matters. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Annie Scheel with assistance from Mark Arlasco, Tati Musinahama, Ari Tolani, John Ramming Chapel, Selma von Oshvard, Aaron Bell, and Frank Sleiper. It was produced by the podcast guru. Hajar Naili and Tate Musinahama made sure we're online. We'd like to thank Ali Jamil, Tony Wilson, and Joy Soihan Lee for joining us as guests. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Protection Pod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content. You can follow Ali Jamil and the work of Muatana and follow the Security Force Monitor and Joy Sohan Lee on Twitter. Find full interviews and upcoming episodes on our websites, civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.